0: Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 16. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Seeing the crowds, He, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and He taught them, saying, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we pause for a moment here in prayer, having heard this word read in your presence, asking now for you to speak to us from this word, to teach us what it means to be salt and light in the world, and to do good works in such a way and in such a manner that the world might see them. And glorify God who is in heaven. Father, we want to know what that word means. We want it to be personally apprehended and understood for our lives. We are asking for you to bring conviction where it is needed. Comfort where it is needed. And challenge where it is needed. And in all of it for you to glorify yourself within us and then from this passage and from the change from it to glorify yourself through us in the world. Father, we plead with you. Send the Spirit now to meet with us as we attend to this your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last nine weeks, you know we've been making our way slowly through this very well-known passage in the Gospel of Matthew known as the Beatitudes. Some of you, knowing the content of the Beatitudes, told me at the beginning when I said, this summer we're going to be breaking from the book of Genesis, which we've been in and we're going to study the Beatitudes, some of you went, "Uh uh-oh, because you knew. This is a meddlesome passage of Scripture It challenges us over and over and over again. It gives us a picture of the kind of change that is to be true of those who are genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you knew that and you've, some of you have confessed. You've been challenged. You've been at times undone. Some, some of you have been provoked by concerned Qualities of your own spiritual life, the Lord revealing areas of your life that you've left unattended and now he's, he's giving to you insight and wisdom in how to approach areas that, that you've just let go. What a beautiful thing that the Lord has done as he's done that in our series. Others of you who approach this passage with fear and trembling have come to me and said, you know what? so encouraged me about the Beatitudes this summer? Is that we've worked through each of them individually and we've, we've been pressed to understand how it brings conviction and it calls us into a life of change, but... The central and culminating focus has been on how Jesus has fulfilled each of the Beatitudes on our behalf. And so it's brought comfort into my life. It's brought encouragement into life. I've read this passage over the years and I've only felt condemnation. And now I read this passage and, I, and I'm experiencing joy because I see that each of these Beatitudes are really a portrait of who Jesus is and what he's done on the behalf of his church. Now, I believe every time we approach the Word of God, something along those lines happens. I even prayed it a minute ago as we were reflecting on approaching this Word. Lord, bring conviction where necessary. Bring comfort where needed. Bring challenge to all of us and where you're taking us. I believe the passage before us, this blessed to bear witness, where the Beatitudes takes us, is among the most challenging sections of, of all of what we've studied so far this summer. Because Jesus is now looking outward. And he's saying, what does the life of the one who is living the Beatitudes, what does that life look like? What effect does it have on the world in which that person lives? That's the question Jesus is really raising In this particular section, verses 13 to 16, what effect do we as believers in Christ who are living the beatitude life in the world, what effect can we anticipate having on the world in which we live? And we are blessed, as I've titled this message, in order to bear witness. Now this is really important when you just see the wisdom of Jesus' construction here. If you were with us last week in the the 8th, the final of the Beatitudes, where it reads, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We said that's a very unusual Beatitude, not only because of how strange it sounds, blessed are those who are persecuted, but each of the Beatitudes leading up to that one was about something that we do, whereas that final Beatitude is about something that's done to us when we're doing all the other things, when we're doing the first seven of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and so forth. When we're actively engaged in the seven Beatitudes, the eighth Beatitude becomes the evidence, the expression, the felt response that we experience from the world. Now, here's what's very interesting. You see where Jesus is going in verses 13 to 16? He's now already told us What we should expect from the world if we live the blessed life, the beatitude life, we should expect persecution. We should expect ridicule. We should expect opposition. But now the question is, what should the world expect from you? This is what you should expect from the world, persecution, opposition. What should the world expect from you? If you're living the beatitude life, it should expect salt. It should expect light. It should expect the emanation, the the flowing forth of the glory of God in good deeds, rising up within you, animating from you. The the world will give to you opposition, but you know what's going to come from you? Salt and, and light. Witness bearing of the blessed life of the change of what God has brought in and through you in the gospel. It's beautiful construction. As Jesus is teaching us intentionally about the kind of witness we should have in the world. Now, I just want to note, even before we jump in to where we're, we're going to go, take heart in this n- reality. Jesus doesn't say, Listen, the world's going to fight you, the, wor- the world's going to put up its dukes against you when you live the beatitude life in front of them. So, hunker down. Pull away, do the best you can to avoid engaging with the world. Escape, hold on, (laughs) set your mind on the future. Your reward is coming. It's it's not where he stops. Now he calls us into the midst of a world that's going to oppose, into the midst of a world that's going to persecute it. He's saying, I want to release you into it. I want you to be salt and light there. I want you to live the good works before them so that they'll see them and glorify God who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, I want you to remember who you are, and then I want you to get to work. Here's the blessedness. I've given you the portrait. Now I want you to keep remembering who you are, and then I want you to get to work. Now, under the light of those two notions, remember who you are and get to work, we're gonna look at these three things. I want you to see the pictures that he gives us here of what it means to bear witness. The pictures. And I want you to see, secondly, the pitfalls, the, the challenges we're gonna face, and the ways we tend to lose our way in bearing witness. I want you to see the pitfalls. And then thirdly, I want you to see the practice the practice of bearing witness. The pictures of bearing witness, the pitfalls in bearing witness, and the practice of bearing witness all under that phrase remembering who you are now let's get to work so jesus says i want to tell you who you are we're going to start with these pictures for bearing witness it's two very vivid metaphors that he gives to us very familiar metaphors if you're aware of this section of scripture you've heard them many of you since you know felt board days in sunday school he starts out this passage saying in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, when you hear salt of the earth, you typically think, as a 21st century North American would think, you think of of seasoning. You think of you think of that that shaker that sits on your dining room table or on your kitchen table. And you may think of the scrambled eggs you had this morning and the dash of salt that you put on top of them to make them a little less bland than they are on their own. You think of it in terms of seasoning, but when Jesus would have mentioned salt in the ancient time, it would not have been primarily seasoning that would have had in mind for the audience it would have been salt's purposes its chemistry and its compound what it does which is preserve that which it is placed on in an age of no refrigeration in the first century when meat very quickly rotted and decayed especially in the heat of a of a middle eastern life would have gone sp- Bad would have spoiled very quickly. And so what did they do? They, in a sense, cured their meat. They salted it to slow the process of decay. That would have been the primary use of salt in the first century. So we've got to get back in the first century shoes and say, how would we have heard this? They would have heard this to say, salt, we use that to keep things from decaying. Jesus says that's real key to what it means to bear witness. And then he gives a second image. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now again, I think it's important that we go back. We live in an age of electric lights, right? This room right now, despite the fact that it is not the the best illuminated room in the world. It's actually for 21st century standards, fairly dark-ish. It's much more light than almost any other century in human history. In fact, when this building would have been originally built and worshipped in, there would have been much light to speak of other than the light of candles. So on a particularly dark day, when the light wasn't coming through the stained glass windows very bright, it would have been supremely dark. Well, in the first century, even, even that would have been less accessible. When you have no diffusing of light, no cities that are lit up with LED bulbs as our own are, and we get the diffusing of light that creates even a lack of, of, of a sense of darkness. In, in the Middle Eastern culture at this time in the first century, pitch black darkness was a reality that many experienced on a daily basis. When the sun went down and fires were put out, there was no there was light To speak of, you could see a light, a torch, a campfire from miles away. It was visible to the naked eye quite easily in the midst of of such darkness. You know this experience, right? You have candles in in your house. Why do you have candles in your house? Not to see. To to be quite honest, most of us, you had those sweet-smelling candles, right? Right? You know, you have those Yankee candles, right? It smells like some dessert or some season of the year or whatever it is. And you light those candles not because you don't have light in your house. You, you light those candles because you want to smell something. But you, you also know that moment, maybe as a kid or, or maybe even over the last 48 hours here in Franklin, we've had some storms come through and some electricity has gone out. In the darkness, you notice light in utter darkness to light a candle. And you know what's interesting for 21st century eyes is when we do that, we're like, wow, it puts off more light than I realized. You have that experience? you in a totally dark room and you light a candle and you'd actually see pretty well. Of course, with all of our electric light, you light that candle and it's like it does nothing whatsoever. But in the ancient world, the image of light was something that would be That would be stark. It would stand out. In the midst of total darkness. The light gets all of the attention. And it causes visibility. Much wider than the smallness of its flame. Jesus says. That's what it's like to bear witness for me. In the world. These two images. These two metaphors. Jesus is saying. This is a display of what real witness bearing. Looks like. In the kingdom that has come in me and is now in you by faith. Now here's what's interesting. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Christians, I want you to go be the light. Christians, I want you to go be the salt out there in the world. Maybe that's what, maybe you're beginning to think. He's like, oh, I've got to be salty out there. I've got to be light out there. He goes, no, no, no. Remember who you are. You are light. You are the salt of the earth. I hadn't asked you to do anything. I'm talking about who you are. It's the very nature of someone who is savingly related to me to be salt and to be light. It's it's who you are. He's not speaking about behavior, it's very important. He's speaking about identity. He's speaking about identity. He wants you to know this is who he has made you to be. Now later he's going to say, go be that. But for now he's saying, this is who you are. Now the reason he's using those metaphors, and if you can hear it, he's letting you know you're different from the world. The the purpose of these metaphors is meant to draw a contrast between you and the world, right? He's saying you are the salt Of the earth. In other words, you're not the earth. Whatever I mean by the earth, that's not you. You're the salt of the earth. You have a relationship to the earth, but you are not the earth. You are the light of the world. He's drawing a contrast. You are in the world, but you are not of this world. You are the light that is in the world. You are distinct from. The very focus of the metaphor is meant to imply something. And let's think of the uses. If salt was primarily used as a preservative in the first century in ancient history, what's he saying about the world? It's decaying. It's deteriorating. The world on its own is under, as the scientists like to say, the second law of thermodynamics. It's fallen, it's broken, it it crumbles, it ruins. Now, listen, you, you know that by simply watching your yard, right? Or by watching your house or by watching your body. It's pretty evident that if you don't do anything with those things, they just, they just crumble. They, they move towards ruin. Jesus is saying that's the nature of the world in which you're in. And in that world, You're to be like salt that's rubbed into meat that's going to decay. You are to give it longevity. To preserve it. To keep it from going the way that it would go. To bring to it, as it were, life. Longer life. You are the light of the world. What does that imply? about the world that we're in, that it's dark, that it's dark. You're you're not the world. You're not the darkness of the world. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You are in the kingdom of light. You are the light of the world. The world is to see you and is to be enlightened, Now, this is what John Stott in his fabulous commentary on the Sermon on the Mount calls the double influence of the church. The church is to have a double influence in the world. The community of faith is to have a double influence in the world. We are to relate to the world in such a way that we are salt, meaning the things which would ruin don't ruin because we're there working ourselves and the grace of God into them. It's a preserving impact on the world. But in addition to that, we are not simply preserving those things which would go to rot. We are also advancing a light. Spreading a picture of light, which throughout the scriptures, what does light typically indicate or symbolize? Well, even go back to the beginning pages of Genesis chapter 1. Light is the very first thing that God ever creates. It's the beginning of life. It's the beginning of life. It's the picture through the psalmist and the proverbs of truth. Of coming into right knowledge of something. It's a picture of who Jesus is in John chapter 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. It is truth and grace giving new life, recreation, renewal, and redemption. We are to be those who are not simply propping up the things that would rot, though that's part of it. We are to be those who are actually advancing the things which are eternal. The things which will last forever. We have our mind and our eyes on both of these realities. We are at one point in time a people an ambassadors, delegates, who are to be salting and are to be lighting the world. And if you can see that, there's a negative and there's a positive. We're to keep things from falling apart as best as we can as we labor in the world by the grace of God. And we're to advance the things which are eternal that will ultimately last forever. The good truth and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just think about it. What is that? That's the ministry of Jesus. What did Jesus do when he was here? He pushed back against the decay. Why did people who were sick just flock to him in droves? (laughs) Because they were decaying. They were deteriorating. They were broken. What did Jesus do? A ministry of mercy... A ministry of salt to preserve, to bring healing, to bring wholeness. Whether it was the hungry crowd, whether it was the blind of Bartimaeus, whether it was the the lame man by the pool of Shalom, whether it was Mary Magdalene who was weeping great tears on his feet and washing his feet with her hair, being redeemed out of the darkness. Of the depravity that was her life. Jesus came with a ministry of salt, but but he didn't just do that, did he? He came with a ministry of light. He was the light. He came to preach the gospel. He didn't simply come to help with physical needs that were going to resurface down the line, he came to preach towards the eternal needs, to secure the eternal ends. He came to do both of those works and he says, I have entrusted that work to you, the church. In fact, I have made you ambassadors of that work. I've deposited my Holy Spirit within you. You are now salt. You are now light as I was salt and as I was light in the world. This is what he means. These are the pictures. This is what he's calling us to Now, you can probably hear it. There are a couple of pitfalls. Because how are we going to be those people? Even in our own communities, there are people who kind of tend towards the ministries of salt, right? (laughs) Preserve, help, those who are falling apart, ministries of mercy. And those who are like, we've got to be focused on eternal needs. You can't be too concerned with those physical kind of of needs. Jesus says, both. Not either or, both and. Both and. We're called to all those things. He came to redeem not just souls. What did he come to redeem? Bodies. The world. He's creating a new heavens and a new earth. You're not going to be disembodied spirits one day in the new heavens and new earth. You're going to have a redeemed body. Physicality is important to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work of his ministry. It's the work that he's called us to as well. But there's, there's pitfalls. And there's two pitfalls that I want to... Identify. I think Jesus identifies for us, and there are by two Cs. Hopefully, help you to remember it. There's the pitfall of a contaminant, and there's the pitfall of concealing. There's the pitfall of a contaminant, and there's the pitfall of a concealing. What do I mean by that? We'll look at verse. 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if you can see it, Jesus is saying, the worst possible thing for salt is for it to cease being salty. For the nature of what it was made to be, to be lost. If that ever happens, salt becomes useless. Salt becomes useless. Now, some of you are scientists in here, right? You're, you're chemists. You know your periodic table a lot better than I do. You know that sodium chloride re- really can't unsalt itself. Like it, it just is salt, and salt doesn't become unsalt. It just doesn't happen. What is Jesus saying here? Is he just misunderstanding the science here and saying, you know... You sometimes run across that salt that's not very salty. You go, I, no, actually I don't. I mean, when I run across salt, it's salty. Say, well, well, Jesus is not meaning that. He's not saying that the substance of the salt ceases to be salty. He's saying the salt becomes mixed in with other things. So much so that it's diluted. And it ceases to have the effect that salt would have. In fact, if I can argue, he's drawing a parallel. He says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's, it's, you know what it's good for? It's good for being sand. It's no different than sand. It's for trampling under, under feet. You put salt and you put sand in your hand, it's a little hard to tell. He seems to be drawing a parallel that there's a saltiness that can be lost when it's mixed as it were with the world. When it's contaminated By the things of the world, it loses its effectiveness to have a preserving influence upon the world. One of the great challenges of the Christian church is to be a people who are in the world but are not of the world. Where we do seem to find it much easier to be of the world and not in the world. That's a more comfortable place. To, to, to be as, as contaminated with the, the things of the world, focused on the things of the world, and then in some ways cutting ourselves off from the witness that is actually to be ours in the world. Jesus says, listen, I want you to know that's going to be a temptation, contaminating yourself with the things of the world. Now some of you are thinking, okay, I guess that means I won't drink or chew or go with girls that do. I guess that's probably what he means, Right? You probably have some egregious sin or something like that in mind. That's actually not. You notice he doesn't give us a list of sins here that he says, Oh, that's worldly. Oh, they went and saw a rated R movie. That's worldly. PG-13 was okay, but rated R, that was bad, right? That kind of sort of fundamentalist talk is not what Jesus has in mind in this moment. He says we can become people who instead of living by godly aims and aspirations, we live by worldly aims and aspirations. You know, that's really what worldliness is. Worldliness is not a series of sins that you do wrong. It's living with the aims and the aspirations of worldly people. You know when we're worldly is when we go to work and work really hard and do a great job mainly because we want to raise and be able to build a bigger house and have a better vacation. That's how the world does it. That's worldliness. You say, well, I work hard for Jesus. Do you? That's the question. That's the question Jesus is raising. Do you work hard? Are you excellent? As if to be salt within your vocation, within your community, to give glory to God, that others might say something, even notice The hard work that you put in and you are able to say and bear witness to the fact that Jesus has done all the hard work. And I get to, in the overflow of his grace, get the gift of this job from which to labor and to provide for my family and to show forth good works. And this is a platform from which to make him known. See how different that is? Worldliness is when we allow the world's aims to be our aims and we do it in the worldly way. That's what what he's saying here. Being contaminated with the things of the world. We'll see this in a minute. If you're like, I'm not buying that. Well, I hope you will. At the end of our time together. Contaminate. You know the second pitfall in bearing witness? It's that second C. It's conceal. Conceal. Notice that Jesus says essentially the same thing differently with the metaphor of light. Look at verses 14 to 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. Now as you read that, you think to yourself, why did he say it that way? Why is You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. It looks like we're soaring up. People don't put it under the bushel as the old children's song went. People don't light a candle and then blot the light of it. And you think, well, of course they don't do that. When you light a candle, when you light a light, why do you light a light? So that you'll have light. Jesus says, you're the light. Why would you want to hide that you're the light? Exactly. That's Jesus' point here. In the ancient world, with no electrically charged light, light being bright, drawing attention to its Self, as Christians, we are to be those who are living in such a manner that the light of our lives is actually seen and has an enlightening impact upon those who are around us. But the tendency, isn't it, in those moments where we're concerned about how we'll resp- they'll respond to the light, persecution, last week, what do we do? I think I'll be quiet. I think I'll laugh at that joke anyway. I think I'll just blend in so as to conceal the light that is Christ in me. And that's the tendency. You see how he's hitting two pitfalls, two, two temptations That we face. And probably some of us in this room right now feel okay, I live a lot of my life by worldly ends. I don't have a lot of saltiness. And then others of us go, I live by a lot of fear. So I hide my light a lot to be concerned what people might think, what will happen to me. Now, if you look over church history, and especially in the modern era, you know what the challenges the church has typically faced? It's faced the challenges of what Jesus is actually addressing in these sort of enigmatic statements here in verses 13 to 16. We have been challenged to either be so close to the world that we fall into it, or to be so separate from the world that we have nothing to do with it. And Jesus says neither. You'll find either of those are easy. Easy. But to be salt and light without containment or concealing is going to take a dynamic of faith and a deep embrace of the gospel. To live in a manner that's going to have that effect on the world in which we live. Now this is where it leads us finally into the practice of bearing witness. So look, look, Jesus actually tells us how to do it. I love it. I love it. As I was reading through the passage, I thought, Praise God for verse 16. Because maybe you're thinking, like, so what, what, what do we do, Nate? <laughs> what, do, what do we do? How do we live? Like, as I'm thinking about this, yeah, I do, I struggle in this. I fall off this side or that side. Here's what Jesus says In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He says, This is what witness looks like. Live in such a way so that your light shines before others. They see your good works and they glorify God who is in heaven. Now, if I can just break that verse down into three things, notice this. What does he tell us to do? Let our light shine. How does he tell us to let our light shine? Through letting our good works be seen. And why does he tell us to do that? So they, the world, might glorify God who is in heaven. That, that's it. Do you notice the motivation is the salvation of the world and the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the motivation for what we do. When that's your motivation, bearing witness becomes clearer. It becomes, it becomes clearer. Because what happens in, with contaminant often is, is we, we, we're drawn to the world And we allow the flesh to control our ends and aims. And why do we conceal? Because we're afraid of what's going to happen. And so we step back from the world. And in both cases, what are we thinking about? And so what does Jesus say? Let me give you a clue about witness bearing. The more that you really love people and love God, you'll find witnessing will come naturally. The more you're worried about you, and the more you're focused on you, the more you'll find it really complicated. And you won't even do it. You'll lose your saltiness. You'll conceal your light. Let your light shine through letting your good works be seen, that the world might glorify the Father who is in heaven. Now, I want you to see Jesus is actually getting to your heart here. He's actually getting to your heart. He's, he's focusing upon the practice, practice of witness bearing, but he wants you to know not just what to do and how to do it. Isn't that where we want to stay? Tell me how to evangelize. Give me, give me six points and I'll go do it. Tell me the three key areas of an effective salt ministry. Right? The, there's value in that teaching, but what's he focusing on here? The end game. That they might glorify God who is in heaven. Oh, that's my aim. That's my aim. That the world, through good works, demonstrably, won't be drawn unto me, but would instead through me, as a reflection of the light that is above, be drawn into worship and the glory of God the Father. That that's the goal. That's the aim. Now it's really curious because if you have your Bibles open, you might actually just glance over to, to Genesis, or we're not in Genesis yet. Matthew chapter 6. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying the opposite thing here. Notice what he says. Beware, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. What? Jesus, I hate to remind you, but a few minutes ago you said, "In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they would see your good works, and give glory to the Father in heaven." Now you're telling me, "Beware, <laughs> practicing your righteousness before others." Notice the caveat in six one: in order to be seen by them, that's the issue. He, Jesus is actually, in your witness bearing, he wants you to know this. You know how much time you spend on saying just the right thing? Doing just the right thing? Don't offend anybody? All that kind of fear-based witness bearing. Jesus says, you know what actually that's lost sight of? Me. Their salvation. <laughs> the, the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you actually think if you can get the most eloquent expression out, they'll be saved. I've been known to use a donkey to save people and to change people. I I, I can use your fumbling and your mumbling as a means by which to accomplish the ends of the kingdom. I want you to address your heart, he's saying. When you do good works, why do you do them? Why why would you do them? And here's what often happens, right? It's what Jonathan Edwards spoke of in his wonderful little treatise, True and Common Virtue. He said, most of us with common virtue do the right thing for the wrong reason when we do the right thing. (laughs) That's commonly the case. We do the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reason. He says, true virtue is actually when we do the right thing for the right reason. And notice, witness bearing in this context is the glory of God who is in heaven and the salvation of the world. That's the focus. Not whether you would offend them or say the right thing. And what we often do, isn't it? We do works, good works, out of the motivation of fear or out of the motivation of pride. That's, that's usually where it comes from. Right? I, okay, I guess I'll go do this deed because, well, if I don't do this deed, the, this person won't like me. Or they'll think poorly of me. Or I'll get talked about negatively. Or I won't get that raise. Or my life will get worse if I don't do this thing. Or whatever. And, and what is all of that? Fear. What is all that focus? You. Or, or we think to ourselves, I, I guess I'll go do this good deed so that I'll be praised by others, or I'll be validated uh, by others, or I'll just feel good about myself. How many times, how many times have you actually either thought or said, oh, Man, I'm so glad I went on that mission trip. It just, I felt so good about what we did. Well, great. That's not the end game. I wonder if Jesus thought hanging on the cross, I just feel so good about this. No. Now, your, your felt feeling in the moment is not the point of the mission. <laughs> it's not the point of the mission. The mission is the glory of God and the good of the world. For that to happen, Jesus says there's got to be a self-forgetfulness. That has been gifted to us by being utterly obsessed with the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And the brokenness and the darkness of the world and the gospel that it needs. There's got to be an obsession with that. So much so that you completely blend into the background. That you're, you're not even in view. When Jesus came, John the Baptist was his forerunner. And I love the way the Gospel of John begins in John chapter 1, speaking of John the Baptist. It says this, John the Baptist came to testify about the light so that through him everyone might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light who gives light to every man who was coming into the world. And, and you go, well, Jesus just said we're the light. What do you think he's speaking of? Your personality? Your gifts? Your natural likableness? No. Your intellect? Your good deeds? Your faithfulness? No, he's speaking of himself in you. He is the light that dwells within you. And when you come to a place where you know any good deed that ever flows from you is not of you and is totally of him, it will make it very easy then to say, when someone looks at your good deeds, you can say, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. What what you're seeing is not me. I want you to know what's been done to me. I want you to know who dwells in me. I want you to know that I lose sight of this and when I do I come back to it and he forgives me and the light grows. And when I walk in it and the good deeds shine and others see it I glorify God and give him praise and I point others to where it is they can find the source of light. You see how sweet witness bearing becomes in that moment because you have so blended into the background and Jesus has become The complete and total foreground of the work of bearing witness for Christ in the world. Listen, friends, we have not been blessed in the gospel to come to a sweet little sanctuary in downtown Franklin and have a cup of coffee and worship the Lord and feel good. We have been called here and equipped and trained by God to be sent out as salt and light in the world. You are here today to be equipped and trained for the work of ministry. We are not to simply be feeding on the riches of the goodness of the Lord and keeping those riches and hoarding them as if they were some religious pantry of which we can constantly go back to and ooh and awe. They are to be opened up to every beggar in the world to come eat. That's why you have the riches. That's why he has made you salt. That's why he has made you light. Where will the world go without salty and enlightened Christians? It will go to decay and it will go to darkness. Jesus has chosen you and me to fulfill the call of advancing the gospel in the generation in which he has placed us. And he is calling us to get over our fear. And to get over our pride. And to come obsessed with His love and His grace. And in our eyes, with our lips, with our hands and with our feet. Show forth the compassion and the grace that Jesus showed forth. For the world when He was crucified and resurrected for them. I said in our confession of sin today that... Francis Schaeffer said that the world has been given the right to judge the truthfulness of Christianity by virtue of how the church lives in that world. How are we doing? How are we doing? Now, with that challenge, don't hang your head. Don't hang your head. You've been forgiven of all the ways that you failed to do that. And me too. And that's worth telling someone about. That's worth telling someone about. Don't hang your head. You are salt. And you are light. Father in heaven... If we lose our saltiness, how will the salt become salty again? If we conceal the light, how will the light be seen? Father, let us with the confidence and the glory and the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us get over ourselves and get into your mission. Forgive us for the ways we've contaminated and concealed. Today, Lord... We seize again upon the truth of the gospel. And we go forth as those who have been charged as ambassadors and proclaimers of the good news. Oh Lord, this week, in answer to the message that you have given to us, bring those into our lives who need salting. Bring those into our lives who are in the dark, who need the light. And in that moment... Bed down our fears and our pride and help us with the light and the glory of Jesus. Be overwhelmed to begin with hands and with feet and with lips and with life. Show forth the glory of Jesus Christ. Do it, Father, and expand your kingdom all for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.